Well, this week we are rejoining the Apostle Paul on his death march towards Jerusalem. How's that for an opening line? Paul will not actually die in Jerusalem, but he thought he would. As we will see, Jerusalem ships him to Rome, and it's in that city where Paul dies, most likely being executed by the Roman state. And regardless of where he actually died, though, Paul knew that he was a man headed in that direction. In fact, last week he told his friends, the Ephesian elders, as much. There were long embraces mingled with bitter tears as Paul told his friends that he went to Jerusalem to die. But why was he voluntarily going to Jerusalem if he believed that death awaited him there? It boggles the mind, particularly the American mind. We are a people allergic to the idea of aging, and it's been vast amounts of money to hide its visible effects on our bodies. And for four years, I worked in a hospital as a chaplain, and I saw dozens of people die during that time. But rarely did I ever hear the word dead describe a dead person. Instead, euphemisms were employed. People didn't die. They expired, like they were a piece of fruit, or were gone. Or the nurse hoped that the family member would understand his silent nod meant that their loved one had died. The word itself is so difficult for us to even voice It falls harshly on our ears, and yet the Apostle Paul willingly marches on towards death's cold embrace. And perhaps even more perplexing for us is Paul's conviction that his suffering and subsequent death were what God had planned for his life. Last week, Paul told the Ephesian elders that he was going towards Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that was leading him onwards, just as the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted when he was most vulnerable. It seems to be something the Holy Spirit does. Persecution was God's plan for Paul, which brings new meaning to the first spiritual law, which says that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's a true statement, but a bit deceptive, for inherent in God's wonderful plan for your life is suffering. No one who has ever been told that God has a wonderful plan for your life ever imagined that God's plan includes suffering, but it does, it always does. just makes for a hard sell, so we leave that part out. There is, though, some comfort in our passage this morning because we see that we're not unique in our aversion to suffering. Our passage opens by reviewing Paul's course to Jerusalem. From Ephesus, he went to Kos, then Rhodes and Patera. Next was Phoenicia, Syria, and Tyre. And because he was making such good time, Paul had opportunity to spend seven days in Tyre. He sought out the Christians in that place in order to encourage them. But they spent the time trying to persuade Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Verse 4 says that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit was contradicting himself by privately telling Paul to go to Jerusalem, but then instructing the Christians at Tyre to persuade Paul otherwise. No, the Spirit was merely making it clear to everyone how Paul would be treated in Jerusalem. And it was the people who, out of genuine concern and love for Paul, were trying to persuade him to stop. This is exactly what we see happening in Caesarea. After Paul leaves Tyre, he visits Ptolemy and eventually lands at Caesarea, where Agabus makes his second appearance in the book of Acts. Agabus, which would be a really great name for a dog, wouldn't it? Agabus. He first shows up in Acts 11.28, where he prophesied about a famine that was going to sweep across the Greco-Roman world. 
And from that run-in with him, we know he's not a false prophet because what he said actually did come true. A famine did strike the the Greco-Roman world during the reign of Claudius. And now, in verse 11, Agabus is prophesying again. Only this time in Jeremiah-like fashion, with props and drama. He takes a belt that Paul was wearing and he binds his hands and feet with it like he's some kind of hog. Or better yet, to make this more contextualized, like he's some kind of razorback. And he tells Paul, this is going to be you in Jerusalem. Right? This is how you're going to be treated. Tied up, treated inhumanely. And through Agabus, the Holy Spirit was reminding Paul what awaited him in Jerusalem. The Spirit was not telling Paul to abort his journey, but merely telling him what to expect there. It was Paul's friends who took that information and in verse 12 were trying to persuade Paul with tears and emotional arguments not to go to Jerusalem. They're playing the part of Peter when Jesus likewise tried to prepare Peter for what awaited him in Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter that he likewise must go to Jerusalem and suffer But Peter pulls him aside and rebukes Jesus. So far from the the will of God was the suffering of Jesus in Peter's mind that he tells Jesus, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus in no uncertain terms sets Peter straight. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus went to Jerusalem to suffer according to the will of God. And his friend, who should have been a source of strength for him, was compromising his resolve. And Paul was experiencing the same thing. His friends did not want him to suffer, perhaps selfishly. They did not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And it isn't until they pushed Paul to his breaking point that their understanding of suffering was changed. And in verse 14, they submitted themselves to the possibility that suffering could perhaps indeed be God's plan for Paul. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Like Jesus, Paul did not budge because the Holy Spirit was pressing him forward, reminding him every step of the way what was waiting for him at the end. The Spirit wasn't rubbing salt in Paul's wound, but keeping this always before him lest he should neglect the will of God. Paul needed the constant reminder. In Acts 9, Paul had already allowed his friends to lower him from a second-story window in a basket in order to escape a plot to kill him. In Acts 19, he allowed himself to be persuaded not to enter an Ephesian theater where his friends Gaius and Aristarchus were being unjustly treated by a violent mob. And now the emotional appeals from his friends were playing on him, tugging at his heart. And he risked giving in to their will for his life before blurting out at them in verse 13, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't get behind me, Satan, but it accomplished the same thing. This correction from the Apostle Paul brought his friends around to a broader understanding of God's plan for his children in this world. The Christian life is rightly lived only when suffering is embraced as a way of life 
Because suffering for the Christian is the way to life. And let me say that again. Feel free to tweet this out after the service. The Christian life is rightly lived only when suffering is embraced as a way of life. Because suffering for the Christian is the way to life. And we learn this truth first and foremost through Jesus Christ. We call Jesus Redeemer and Savior because he's given us life. We were dead and blind, asleep and dumb, and yet he loved us. We were rebellious, and yet he had compassion on us. It cost him his life, but he saved us even as we scoffed at the suggestion that we even needed help. He knew our violation of God's purposes for humanity were far more frequent and offensive than we could ever see or admit. And he saved us from ourselves and from the righteous wrath of God against us by becoming like us in every way except for sin and taking upon himself, a human being, the wrath of God. His death satisfied God's natural and good demand for justice while creating a way for us to return to God. Covered in the blood of Jesus, we may approach God and find forgiveness. Looking at the lifeless, abandoned body of Jesus on a Roman cross, we learn what we deserved and just how displeasing our lives were to God. Jesus is our wake-up call. He is our forgiveness. He is our champion. He is our hero. He is our life. And he too, having sufficiently exhausted the wrath of God, experienced God's justice. God raised Jesus from the dead so that we have not only forgiveness but also hope. Our past is not just wiped clean, but our future is made bright as well. For Jesus has not only brought about forgiveness through suffering, but he has also overcome death in his resurrection. Death is now ultimately an empty threat. And suffering is now the means by which we are made perfect. This is why Paul marches towards death with such confidence. Called to Jerusalem by God, he knows he has nothing to lose. For he himself has said in his letter to Philippians that, to the Philippians that to die is gain. His absence from this world meant his presence with Christ. Death is an empty threat. And suffering is the means by which we are made more perfect. In fact, Paul encourages the Romans to do the unthinkable, to rejoice in their suffering. Because through the pain, God is making you more perfect. We rejoice in our sufferings, he writes in Romans 5, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God loves us, because he's poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus became victorious through death, and he won rest through suffering. It is absolutely counterintuitive, but such is the nature of Christianity. The Bible presents us with a way of understanding creation and humanity, our, our bodies and the purpose of life, that chafes against the philosophies and positions that humanity creates on their own. And that contrast has always brought conflict to the church. But suffer as the church may from persecution or temptation or the experience of brokenness that is common to all humanity, let us never forget that suffering is the way to life. And so let us make it also our way of life. The Hansen brothers, not the Hansen brothers of the Mbop variety, but Kevin and Keith Hansen, 
who are the Hansen brothers of the distance-running guru variety, Kevin and Keith Hansen have developed an unconventional approach to marathon training, and a number of world-class athletes have thrived under their guidance. An article in Runner's World from 2010 explains their approach. They both believed that Americans had forgotten a key ingredient to the success marathon runners like Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers had enjoyed. People had stopped doing group training, says Kevin. We'd lost that team concept of you make me better and I'll make you better. The brothers also saw a flaw underlying the ways in which Americans were training. Everyone wanted a regimen that would leave their legs feeling fresh, says Kevin. They wanted to know, how can I get that spring in my legs? That was the wrong question. The question should be, how can I train my body so that when the fatigue hits me, I'm still able to respond? We are, not tra- we are not training to run a literal marathon as Christians, but the author to the Hebrews does compare the Christian life to a race. It is a race not measured in miles with the goal of crossing the finish line, but a race measured in years with the goal of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, who stands at the finish line ready to embrace us as we collapse into his arms. And so we actually have much we can learn from the Hansen brothers about how to run the Christian race. The question for us should not be the kind of question that the American distance runners were asking, how can I get that spring in my legs? Or what is the regimen that leaves me feeling fresh? But how can I train my body so that when suffering hits me, I remain faithful to my Savior and to my God? As Christians, we prepare for suffering, for the suffering that is promised to us by practicing it. This is the purpose of the spiritual disciplines. We deprive our bodies of food in order to learn how to be faithful when we're prone to be grumpy. We deprive our mouths from speaking so that we can better hear God in this noisy world of ours. We spend time in isolation and prayer so that we become confident of Christ's presence with us even should all our family and friends abandon us. We spend the time soaking ourselves in the word of God so that like Jesus, when we are tempted, we are able to drive back the devil by quoting scripture that reminds us of God's promises and love for us. We are willing to look weird to the world, willing to appear out of touch and be misunderstood because so was Jesus. And we know that God understands us. We give up our lives so that we might gain Christ. We practice suffering. Are you practicing suffering? If you're not doing it when it's easy, what makes you think you'll remain faithful to Christ when the pressure is on? What makes you think you'll remain faithful to the the orthodox historical teachings of the church when the pressure is on? When you're battling cancer or when our culture demands your allegiance at the cost of your job or your conscience? If we are not practicing suffering in our homes, are we really preparing our children to inherit a a culture increasingly opposed to Christianity? How can you so train your body so that when fatigue hits, you're still able to respond? But the Hanson brothers also said one more thing that is relevant to us and to our passage this morning. American distance running, particularly at the marathon distance, had fallen apart after, after the 70s and the spectacular careers of Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers. And the Hansen brothers attributed that in part to the fact that people had stopped group training. We'd lost that team concept of you make me better 
and I'll make you better. In in training or racing, the person next to you can be your greatest asset, your greatest motivator. And the same is true of you in the pew. We should not be surprised or turned off that the person next to us is suffering in some way. They need you and you need them. But you must be present to help them. And it requires intentionality to find out what makes that person so miserable week in and week out. Or what makes them look so sad all the time. It requires intentionality to discover that the friendliness and jokes are only laying cover for a deeper pain that they wish they could tell someone about. It requires effort to learn each other's stories so that you are moved from judgment to compassion and grace. You're here to make them better, and they'll make you better. Peter and the Christians at Tyre had the opportunity to strengthen the faithfulness of Jesus and Paul on their journeys to Jerusalem. And instead, they compromised and weakened their resolve. Both situations required the person who needed encouragement to instead expend their precious energy correcting the person whom God had appointed to provide that encouragement. And let us not make that same mistake. But let us take responsibility for one another. Especially for these three girls who will be joining our church today. And let us invest in the health of this church. For it is Christ's church. And it is full of people He loves. Should we feel any differently about each other? It is full of people who are running the race God has assigned to them. Let us encourage each other and run alongside of each other, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who stands at the finish line to welcome us. He suffered for us. Let us also suffer for Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.